Hello, I'm Bruce Sertes, and this afternoon, very happy to have Peter Takach here from Oberlin, Ohio, who has just produced another Beethoven 32 sonatas. Now, do you think the field is not crowded enough? Yeah, it's a pretty crowded field. Yeah. It's combed over. But this one has about 37 sonatas. So it has a little bit of a distinction. I do the 32, and then I've also recorded the early sonatas and a couple of sonata-associated pieces. For example, the uh, Andante Favori, which is now known as an independent piece, used to be the second movement of the Waldstein. So it's recorded in the 11th CD here as kind of an extra. So if anybody wants to, they could even include it in the Waldstein if they'd like. But well, it wouldn't work, really. Uh, I noticed that, it, uh, well, noticed, it's pretty obvious, it's in SACD. Now, in these days when SACD is not as popular as they'd hoped, what is the point of the SACD? Is that something you had to do? It was a decision by the recording company, which is uh, Sound Mirror in Boston. They're friends of mine, very cutting-edge people. And when I started recording this set in 2001, SACD was the hottest thing going. So they said, we're going to do this at the high level, high-end audio. And of course, I went with it, you know, because uh, I'm interested in audio, first of all. And second of all, I wanted this to be everything that it could possibly be. However, 10 years later, SACD is kind of uh, declining. So now we have SACD. But fortunately, there are machines out there that will play SACD. But this one's also hybrid, so you can play on a regular CD player. Yes, but also it's, it's five-channel, isn't it? It's five-channel. At home, I have a two-channel system, but I have an SACD player. Uh, I think it sounds better in SACD, even two-channel, than in regular CD. And I've heard it in five-channel, and it, uh, it sounds pretty amazing. So now, you know, you're a professor at Oberlin. Right. Now, how do you start? At what point do you start to record these? Do you say, I think I'll record these? I think I have to record them? And you then know, who'll take any notice? There was a tipping point, actually. You know, it was, uh, in the mid-90s, I had learned piecemeal maybe about half of the sonatas. You know, everybody plays the pathétique, and I don't even think I played the Moonlight. Anyway, I got to a point where you can actually say, well, let's go all the way. And that happened around 96, 97. And so I just kind of uh, jumped in the deep end. I said, I'm going to do this. Um, so I booked uh, two years' worth of recitals at Oberlin, in 98, 99, and then 99, 2000. I did four recitals each. I started with the ones I knew, and then I, the rest I just had to start learning, including the Hammerklavier, which I had not played before. Well, you must have played little bits of it as a student or... I knew the piece, and yes. I had looked at the score, but I never really tackled it, so... But unfortunately, they, they won't let you record 31 sonatas, so I had to do the Hammerklavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, when you played your recitals, you would play in a certain way to suit the hall or the, the venue. In a recording, there's only a couple of microphones, five in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, did you modify your playing at all? That's an interesting question, you know, and I, in fact I had a discussion with a friend of mine recently about that very topic. Do you change the way you play depending on the size of the hall or on the kind of piano you're playing or on the repertoire? And my friend, who is a very fine musician, basically said I would not change a thing under any circumstances. I play it the way it should go. 
And I had a big disagreement with him because I think if you play in a room, let's say in a living room with 20 people, I wouldn't play the same way as I put it in a hall that, that seats 2,500. You know, it's a different amount of space that you have to fill. So uh, for the microphones, that took some adjusting, you know, because it's very impersonal and it's very unforgiving. So at the beginning, I was kind of cautious when I started this cycle. And then over time, I kind of realized that, uh, you know, we can always do it again. So it took me a little bit, but I think after a while, I just let her fly. When you say you could do it again, did you in fact do any again? Uh, I did. The procedure generally was to do every movement twice from beginning to end, which is a nice way to do because you have continuity and you have a sense of the structure and so on. And the, usually the two takes gave me maybe 75% of what I needed, as according to my producer who was listening, said, I think we're covered for these sections. And then the other 25% took twice as long because they're problematic areas and also repeated takes and so on. So, um, and then there were the 1% that is everybody's fear, like parts of the fugue of the Harmoclavier that were really thorny and naughty, and that took the most time. Just as an aside, will some purist find uh, your thoughts impure? In the sense of actually the, taking the performance takes? practices and what is written and how you played it, if you reinforce any little parts? That's a big topic for me, is how do you deal with the score? Okay, I think about it a lot. In fact, I have various scores here. Can I show you some? Certainly. Okay. Uh, this one is a new edition of the Sonatas. It's by the Associate Board of the Royal Schools of Music. It's a wonderful score. It's edited by Barry Cooper, who's a yes. big musicologist. And I like many, many things about it. For example, the notes, comments, are, can be separated. They come out, they have a little notch here. So as you're practicing your sonata, you can have the book next to it instead of having to go back, back and forth all the time. So that's very thoughtful. Um, nice addition, but it cannot possibly be the last word because they have to make decisions about stuff like staccatos and you know, different sources and all that kind of thing. So any addition is some kind of an editorial uh, composite of various things. Were you able to consult the original manuscripts at any time? I was. Uh, that's one of my great stories because I... I went to Bonn to look at the original materials, and I was not actually approved to go to the vault where they have the originals because I was not an accredited musicologist or whatever. But the director of the archive saw me sweating away in the library and he said, come, come with me. So he asked me, is there anything particular you'd like to see? And I said, well, I'm working on 111 right now. Could I see the 111? Because I knew they had in their collection. So he opens a big, heavy steel drawer, and he pulls out, he didn't even have gloves on, he pulls out the original manuscript of 111. The original? The original. And I'm going to confess this to your audience, but I, tears started coming down my eyes because I was touching the score that Beethoven held in his own hands. And it, it was unbelievably powerful to me. Um, so let me show you, this is Nice edition. I don't endorse it. I don't get any royalties out of saying that, but it's nice. Let me just ask you, yeah. did seeing that manuscript change the way you thought about the piece? I think it did. You know, first of all, it put me in touch with kind of the authentic material. You know, it just gave me kind of a contact with the original. Second of all, the things in the manuscript that, that 
editions don't show. For example, some of the pedalings are sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, some of the, and they have to decide whether they're going to uniformize or not. So, um, beginning of 111. Pa-pam, pa-pam, And how long do you hold that pedal before you release it? And in the book, it's a certain length, and the next, in the manuscript, it's actually very clearly lined up with the rest. It's all kind of slightly diagonal. So to me, it showed me exactly where Beethoven wanted to, the pedal release. Off. So I got real indications. Sometimes no. when you look at the score, if I may go on for a second, some things are crowded in different places. He didn't have enough room to write the crescendo or crescendo or something like that. So they put in funny places. But you can immediately see where they're supposed to go. But in the addition, they have to put them where they think it should go. So yes, the answer is you really should consult the originals. Now to put in one more plug here, uh, the Beethoven House in Bonn has put all of their materials online. You go to Beethoven House, you can Google it, and then you go to Digital Archives, and you click 111, and there is a photocopy of the score that I saw, and which I think is an amazing public service, and I want to give him huge compliments for that. Do you think that the sonatas are the actual embodiment of, of Beethoven's thoughts and you tell you everything you want to know? Is a score, does it give you enough information to make decisions? The way I think about it, I think of it as kind of a blueprint for a house. Okay, you can't live in it, it won't keep you, but it's, it's a plan. And then the guy that's building has to go in and make decisions about what that means exactly and sometimes occasionally even make changes. Now this is heretical, because we live in a time when urtext is king, right? And I know people who would not change anything in an urtext, even if it may not actually be authentic. But, um, for example, Beethoven's pianos had limited registers, right? So it goes up to F and down to F, five octaves. And every once in a while he would want to go beyond, but he couldn't. And he couldn't write those notes because those notes were not available. So he made little changes in order to accommodate the limits of the piano. And then later on, as soon as the piano became larger, he began writing for that register. And he always went all the way to the edge. So should you add those notes because you think that had he had them, he would use them? It's a big topic. I don't know. I, I make a separate decision case by case. For example, in the Tempest Sonata, in the recap, he's got a place that goes upwards, and he runs out of notes. So he, what he does is he repeats the top note over and over. He sits on a D, pam, 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 pa. I would never change that because it's so powerful, you know? Yes. It's hitting against the edges, and it sounds very um, powerful and angry almost. So that one you should, you could go up on a modern piano because you got plenty of notes. You go pam, 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 pam. But I think the repeated D is actually more stormy and tempestuous than if you were to. So that I would never change. When you say angry, do you mean frustrated by the limitations of the instrument? Yeah, yeah. But when he couldn't, and he can, could no longer hear, um, maybe he embraced an ideal that, in fact, would come later. Uh, he definitely wanted to go beyond. But at the same time, don't forget, he had to make money selling scores. So if somebody would come and say, I can't play these notes, and my piano doesn't have them, then he would lose sales, just like I would lose sales if the SACD wouldn't play on a regular player. 
So he, you know, he accommodated that, but he was not very happy about it. And I don't know if you know, in the Sonata Opus 101, he, that's the first time he had a piano and went down to C instead of F. And it's in A major, so he uses the note E a lot. And there's one place in the back of the score where he's practicing how to write low E's, which he had never written before. And it's really funny because he's got these ledger lines and he's writing above the line, below the line. He's practicing how to write this stupid low E. And at one point, there's a big low E that repeats. And he um, didn't know how to write. He kept erasing until the paper completely shredded. You can see it in the manuscript. And so he just wrote contra A underneath, meaning low E. You know, it's just a low E. And so I don't have that particular score, I don't think. Anyway, you can look it up at uh, the Beethoven house. But what he did definitely is whenever the range expanded, he used it. He always went all the way to the edge. Is there more information now for uh, musicians, pianists, uh, to, on these scores than was available, say, when Schnabel recorded his cycle? Um, you know, I think he probably looked at the original. He, I don't know how much access he had in those days, but most of the editions in those days were edited by famous people. Yes. You know, like there was a bit of an edition by Von Bülow. And in those days, it was considered to be a selling point because it, this is a master class with Von Bülow, right? But so they would have to make changes as they were making an addition. That was the selling point, you know, that you're getting the certified Von Bülow version of these things. And for a while I dismissed them, you know, but just recently I learned that it's a fantastic learning tool to look at Von Bülow edition to see how 19th century people thought about Beethoven. Different uh, pedalings, different dynamics, different slurs. And so lately I've been looking at them, you know, because they're interesting. However, Schnabel probably looked at something like this. I brought all of my learning tools. This is first edition um, of Opus 10. And these were available in libraries in Schnabel's time, and I think he probably used them. They're very clean. They're beautiful. Um, yes. You know, and uh, so this, for the early pieces, there are no manuscripts. So this is the only thing we have, basically. It's first editions. Well, and, when uh, RCA issued the complete Schnabel, yeah. They had the scores with them with, with Schnabel's, Schnabel's edition, right? Yes. Which I also have, and I consulted. It's not an urtext, but it's Schnabel's ideas about Beethoven, so it's fascinating. Talking about urtext, what effect did it have on you to hear original instrument performances on, on a forte piano, for instance? Does that tell you something that you didn't know? It does. Yeah, I love those instruments, by the way. I don't specialize in them. I'm a modern pianist. But you learn a lot about the kind of sound that those people heard. You know, in Beethoven's case, he heard until about 1803, then he couldn't hear anymore. Uh, you learn a lot. The hammers of those pianos were uh, covered in leather, not in felt. So what that does, it gives a much more clean, little dry stroke to the string. So I actually tried to emulate that in the early pieces. Um, a different kind of touch on the piano that would not go so deep and it's a little quicker. So you get a nice snappy, clear tone that's a little less fat and thick than you could get on a modern piano. So I learned a lot. Tell me why a Bosendorfer? Did you feel that was better than a whatever? Right. I have to confess it was more or less a question of availability. Uh, I got a year off from Oberlin to do some recording. Uh, so I had a limited amount of time. So 
We had booked a whole... A year sounds a lot of time, incidentally. I know. They, it was, well, first, they've been very generous with me, but um, this eventually took six years to record. But anyway, it was a starting point. And we had booked a hall in uh, Massachusetts where the Sound Mirror people are. They're from Boston. This is called Mechanics Hall in Worcester. Beautiful hall built in 1880 and so on. So we went there, gorgeous hall, all set up, ready to go. Meter running, right, on the, on the dollar sign. And I played the piano and it was uh, no good. It was a Hamburg Steinway that had a couple of buzzes in it that nobody could fix. I still have a, some demos from that. You know, it sounded gorgeous and every once in a while there's a buzz. Like, pum 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 buzz dum pim drum, pum buzz that, the high C, anyway. So we called a technician. So took two weeks. They went at it, they fixed, they worked on it, couldn't get rid of the buzz. So it was already October, November of my year off, right? And so I said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I know of a piano in Baltimore that's very good. And maybe we could ship it over here. So I'm on the plane to Baltimore to try. This is a piano that Richard Good uses, by the way. There's a woman, her name escapes me, but she has a stable of pianos. Um, gorgeous. Okay, how much would it cost to ship it to Worcester, Massachusetts? $6,000. So. Would that include uh, tuning? Uh, it would include her, you know, it's the, yeah, you hire the piano and, yes. the pia and the technician. Well, do we have any other options? Anyway, to keep going like this. The recording guy said, you know, we just recorded something in Tennessee. They have a Bösendorfer over there. Would you be willing to fly over to Clarksville and try it out? And I said, well, what have I got to lose? So, and I tried this piano. It had real promise, but it was not in good shape. So we know a technician who knows Bösendorfer's very well, and they brought this guy in. And he made it into a beautiful piano. So the hall was nice, and it's kind of a new hall, very soundproof, especially if you turn off the air conditioning. So we decided we're going to go with this. So that's how the Bösendorfer. It was not exactly my choice, but it was just an opportunity. It was available. And the piano is gorgeous, but I have to confess that it had one limitation for me. And that is that it, above a certain dynamic, it didn't really want to deliver. It's an Austrian piano. It has that kind of aesthetic. Beautiful, but polite. So in some cases, I wanted just a little bit more punch, but I didn't have it. On the other side of the equation, the soft playing was really marvelous. Beautiful, controlled pianissimos. The pedals were perfect. You know, There were no noises and everything. So on the whole, I think it was a good choice. Well, Busendorfer is a, a magic name. I've mentioned to people about the set, and they say, oh, Busendorfer, oh, they roll their eyes like they're, it's Nirvana or something. It is beautiful, yeah. Uh, I mean, I love what came out. And uh, this technician was there, of course, 24-7 uh, during the recordings. Well, did you have the same technician throughout the... Yeah. So would you yeah. have to uh, say, well, we're going there on March the 28th, that kind of thing? Yeah, we eventually had a team. We had my producer, who was kind of my handler, so to speak, and the engineer, and myself and the piano technician. And the four of us worked from 9 a.m. to 6, and then we went and had a lot of beers. <laughs> <laughs> Next morning, 9 a.m., we were ready to go. Well, could this set be defined, I know it doesn't exist, as definitive? I don't think there's such a thing. No. There's no such thing. Even, you know, some of these things I recorded in 2001, that's 10 years ago. 
And I listen back and I say, you know, I might do it differently today. You know, so it's a moment in time. It's a how I was thinking at the time, and you can evolve. Some things I listen to and I say, yeah, I think that's the way it should go. For example, the transition from the slow movement to the third movement of the Waldstein, which I think is a magic moment, you know, when you have... Yes, that, indeed. He's got a sforzando G after that beautiful introduction, and then starts the C major with pedal part. And uh, I listen to and I say, mm, I like that, you know, so I'm happy about that. Other things, an example is the slow movement of the very first sonata. It's an adagio. And when I was doing this, this was 10 years ago, I was very much into flowing tempos. I wanted things not to drag. I didn't want to bore anybody. I wanted to be natural, quote unquote. And I listened to it today and I said, you know, that could be slower. It could be more solemn, more processional. It's, a it's pleasant and I think it's beautiful. But it's not wrong. It's kind of andante-ish. And I wanted it more adagio-ish, okay? So would I go back and change it? You know, I'll do it today, maybe 10 years from now, I'll listen to it and I said, nah, I think the first one was better, who knows? So this is a statement of how I was thinking when it was recorded. Uh, I can't call it definitive, you know, in any, I don't think there is such a thing. Now, the, the production is absolutely extraordinary. We have the, look at it, it's thick cardboard. Yeah, it's nice cardboard. It's yeah. not just a, a, a wrap. Exactly. Yeah. The discs come in a wonderful little book. There are 11 discs there. And the nice thing about it, if I may show, is the fact that they're coded to a picture which is more or less chronological. This is the young Beethoven for the first CD. And then if you pull out the CD, the same picture is on the CD itself. So you never put it in the wrong envelope, hopefully. No. You know, they're nicely coded and they go in nicely and then on the back of each envelope is the contents with the movements and so on. So I think it's beautifully designed. That's what took quite a bit of time actually after the recording was finished. So that's 11 CD booklet that opens like that. And then there's a book this, of This text, is the treasure, which, except for the recordings. Uh, exactly, <laughs> right. Uh, which I wrote. There's an essay there, I call it The Mind of Beethoven, which is a little bit of a presumptuous title, but after you play all of them, you kind of start having some ideas about some themes and uh, thoughts that preoccupied him. So it's the mind of Beethoven. And then there's notes on all of the movements with uh, musical examples. And there's something actually quite unique here, which I didn't do myself. It was done by a person in California. Uh, I've been telling people that you did it yourself. Oh, you did? Whoops. This was written by a gentleman who's kind of a musicologist producer. It's called a timeline, and when you pull it out, it actually unfolds like a map. And what you have here is a year-by-year -year description of historical developments during Beethoven's life. So if you're playing a sonata written in 1801, you can find 1801 somewhere, yeah, here. And then you can see what happened in, in history, in science, in literature, in music, other composers, and I think that's yeah. Beethoven, music, literature, science, and history. So I think this is an amazing, it's a treasure trove. Yeah, indeed, you know, indeed. Which well, I'm might, sorry it's not yours. Uh, well, I did proofread it and it was, you know, well, that's I, good I had to use a microscope. But um, 
I think these days, in order to create something that can be a CD, that's not just a question of downloading, is to have something that has a great deal of substance and a great deal of information, you know, which is not really something that you could do by downloading tracks. You know? Now, some people may just want that, but I think this is also it's a beautiful object. You know, it just uh, feels good in the hand. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. So, um, but see, if you saw that online, you wouldn't know that. Right. You have to see it. You have to, you have to, you know, everyone that touches to it that. feels very, they say, That's solid. they say, wow, you know, this is, you know, they're kind of stunned in a way, you know? Yes. Um, so it, yeah, I, I'm proud of it. You Did know, you envision a, this kind of thing when you started? It kind of evolved. I mean, just designing this, you know, how to go, yeah. how to house 11 CDs. You can have little envelopes stacked together and so on. But the idea of a kind of a book that opens, this was done by some designers also in California. So, um. It evolved over time, and there were a lot of players uh, acting on this. I mean, there was myself, and then there was these consultants, there was a designer, there was the label. And then the manufacturing of the CDs had to be done by Sony Austria, because there's not that many people that print CDs, uh, SACDs these days. And this part of it was done in Hong Kong by somebody that does a lot of high-end recording projects. So it turned into a global event that involved a lot of uh, different people, and uh, I'm very happy that it's finally done. Well, is this distributed around the world? Can it's you buy It's distributed it? by Naxos. Yes. So I think they have probably the best distribution system they do. in the world. So Indeed, they do. It's out there on all the venues. It can be downloaded. It can be bought through various online things. These days, we don't have many retail stores, so I don't think it's out in any kind of retail stores. No. But certainly, you'd miss out on a heck of a lot if you just downloaded. I think you'd miss out on a lot, yeah. And then it, it actually fits in a CD shelf, so... Years ago, Toscanini um, finished the Beethoven Ninth Symphony. In fact, on April Fool's Day, 1951, okay. 52. And he said, with sweat on his brow, that's the closest I can get to Beethoven. Now, there's a man who played them for half a century. Right. Hundreds of times, right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, that's Tuscanini. I don't claim to be Tuscanini. No, uh, but he said it's as close as he as can close get. As close as he could get. Uh, In other words, as close he, as he could He get. got to the bottom of the, he, he did everything could possibly be done with that. I don't know. I think there's always more to this. You know, I always talk to my students and I talk about going for the gold that's on top. You know, you can like sift it and so on. But you gotta, you gotta dig a little deeper. There's always some more stuff under, underneath there, I think. So maybe not Tascanini, but myself, I always think there's some, something more to be discovered. Which gives me a chance to show you my other uh, material that I brought here. This is fantastic. This is the autograph of Opus 109. And, you know, this is something that I do make a point of, and that when you're doing this work, you know, you really have to be kind of Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's not enough to have just this. This is fine and wonderful. It's just not all of the information, you know. The first edition has a lot to do with it. And to look at something like the beginning of 109 on manuscript, first of all, look at all the burn marks here, you know, which, you know, Beethoven used candles and so on, he would drop some wax on it or some match or whatever. And occasionally there's a 
coffee stain or whatever. So it's it's very physical. But look at this first page of 109. My heavens. You know? I mean, you asked me before if... That needs an interpreter rather than just a copyist. You have to learn how to read this stuff. First of all, his, his actual writing is very hard to read because it's kind of Gothic, Germans, and there are people that specialize in it. But then just seeing the spacing and the um, way he corrects things, I mean, he'll erase some stuff here. He has extra lines at the end of the line. You see the thought process. You know, you see his brain kind of saying, no, I don't think I'll do that. I think I'll do this other thing. Does it imply that he was in a hurry to get down what he had in his head? You know, I think that's actually, it's absolutely true. Usually he's got this one, not particularly, but they start very neat, you know, because they're supposed to be publishers, um, you know, printers' copies. And then as he continues, it gets more and more messy because his thoughts are ahead of his hands. So I recently saw a score, a manuscript of the Diabelli Variations which were just acquired by the Beethoven house. Starts out nice and neat with the theme and everything, and each variation gets sloppier, and it gets more erasures and more stuff like that. So you can see the little wheels turning in his head, you know? What uh, would you say is the difference between a Beethoven and a Mozart, where Mozart wrote it all out beautifully, didn't correct anything, Mozart. and if it dropped off his bed, he didn't bother picking it up, he just wrote it out again. Uh -huh. But Beethoven actually worked on these, and made uh, revisions to revisions to three thoughts to coming back and, and all that kind of thing. Quite a difference, yeah. Mozart seemed to have things more or less ready in his head when he wrote. And I think, to me, Beethoven is the most fascinating in terms of looking at the manuscript because you can see corrections, you can see changes. Also, there's sketches, which I can't read. You know, he used to walk around with a book always, and he would write, he would have a sketch for a string quartet, and right next to it, you have a sketch for the Ninth Symphony, and then there was be another thing for Mr. Solemnis. And to decipher that is a lifetime work, which I don't do, but there are people that do it. And his sketches always show his bad ideas, you know, like he would have a theme that wouldn't work. And then you see him kind of working on it and working it out, and then eventually comes up with what we know. Is this when he could hear? Uh, or no, I think he did that his whole life. He was, a, yeah, he was yeah. a just a prodigious sketcher. And these books are also available now. But fortunately, they're available in a sketch photocopy, and there's also a printed version, which people have actually written out. Because I can't read them. They're like little chicken scratchings. Yes. I'll give you an example from the Tempest Sonata. Um, there's, you know, when the theme comes in, bam, 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 beam, the right hand has got triplets. Ding, bam, bam, beam, when it crosses over. Well, in the, in the sketches, all of this triplet stuff is only a chord with two little lines across it, meaning tremolo, meaning some repeated note business, you know, or strings going ta -ga -da -ga -da -ga -da. Yeah. And then it's got the theme, bom, 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 pee. So students, they see the printed copy, they see triplets, they practice triplets, whatever, to make sure that they wrote, they're doing the triplets that Beethoven wrote. Well, he had an idea of just, brrr, just it was stormy stuff, you know. So when I play it, I put the pedal down and I go bum bum They're triplets, but it doesn't really matter what you what you're going for the is the effect of something very, very exciting. So um, if I hadn't seen that sketch, I wouldn't know this. Because he had like two little lines across each chord, and when the chord changed, new chord, two little lines, which is basically string tremolo, right? So if this was written for orchestra, it might have been brrr, with basses going bum 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 so I learned something, which I wouldn't have known otherwise. So a collector 
who has several versions of all of these pieces, are then going to listen to certain passages and say, well, nah, that's not how it's played. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's good. You know, they're out there. This is what I thought at the time. This is my best judgment. What people think of it, I just can't control. And the, the field is so crowded. You know, I mean, you're talking Schnabel, first one, right? Yes. And then you're talking all the other guys, you know, this Kempf and Barenboim and Brendel. And, and Gulda. And Gulda. And then there's the new guys, you know. I won't mention their name because they're my competition. And somebody's going to listen to them and say, man, I think that's, I like that better than Takach, you know. And the other thing is that there's so much material here. I mean, there may, maybe they'll say, you know, I really like Takachi's Tempest. I think he really captured the thing. But I don't like his Moonlight as much as, you know, somebody else. So... Well, that's their problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they just have to make a choice. Very frequently you see uh, criticisms of artists who have the music in front of them, mm -hmm. sometimes violinists, sometimes pianists. Uh, does that mean that they're... What does that mean? Does it mean they don't really know the piece or they want some comfort level? Well, memorization is a big issue. You know, people didn't used to memorize works. In, in Beethoven's time, they all used scores. Uh, and there are people today, they use scores for security or whatever. But the one that the culprit is Mr. List, because he's the one that started playing what we call the modern recital from memory. And so ever since then, we feel obligated to memorize. Um, I think there is some kind of sense of having internalized the material when something is memorized. Um, it's kind of like an actor learning their lines, you know, you don't go around with a score in front of you. Um, conductors face this quite a lot, you know, I mean, there are conductors who have prodigious memories, like Sergio Zal, Laurie Mazel, they always conduct from memory. Does that make them better musicians or does that mean that there's more of a uh, owning the material? You know. Not necessarily. Um, but that's different for a conductor. For a but, conductor a, but, a, but a performer yeah. couldn't the memorized score be tweaked to their, you know, their brain would change it slightly? They would, yeah. I mean, once you internalize a score, then really the visual part really should be irrelevant, you know, because that's just, a, as I said, a kind of a blueprint thing. I mean, I memorize all of my music uh, when I play solo. When I play chamber music, I don't memorize, you know. And there's a kind of an issue also of having something basically memorized but having a score in front of you. And sometimes I'm in the middle of something, I look up, I actually get confused, you know, because suddenly I'm seeing something that I was playing from memory. So I think in general for soloists, from my point of view, it's better to memorize. Now there's various stories out there. For example, Richter, he had something like 100 recital programs memorized in his head. And at a certain point, his perfect pitch shifted when he got to be about later 50s. And so he heard a half step high. So he would be playing something in D major and he would hear it in E flat major in his ear. And he started getting confused because what his hands were doing was not you know, agreeing with what his ears were doing. So that's when he started playing with the score. And as you know, Richter in the later years always played with score. So that was kind of an issue for him because he has amazing perfect pitch, but then it shifted, happens with age. Um, anyway, that doesn't give a definitive answer. A lot of people play with music these days, you know, and as you get older also, maybe sometimes your memory is not quite as reliable. Now, I, had, I played this cycle in public from memory, 
but when I recorded, I actually had, I made these composite scores of four movements in kind of a miniature score version. I had this big cardboard in front of me that had an entire movement. I didn't use it much, but uh, just sometimes I did refer to it, and since it's not a video, then it was not an issue. Well, in recital, when you played these, did you, in what order do you play them? Did you create a little program of contrasts? I did, they were not chronological. Uh, one thing I do believe about these is that the opus numbers should be played together. For example, opus 10, number one, two, three. Because Beethoven had a real plan for, in the early days, when he had an opus number with three sonatas in it, he had some kind of contrast built into the selection. For example, opus two, number one, is F minor, very stormy. Opus two, number two, is uh, A major, which is kind of a Haydn-esque, very light. And opus two, number three, is C major, it's very brilliant and virtuoso. So he wanted them to have a kind of entity feeling to them. Same with Opus 10, and maybe same with Opus 31. So that's one thing I did do, is always the Opus numbers were together. Well, when people say a piece of Beethoven is uh, Haydn-esque, what are they actually saying? Well, Haydn was his teacher, you know, he, although they didn't get along all that well. Um, Haydn-esque, I think, means very classical, very orchestral. Uh, and also kind of witty. You know, if you think about Opus uh, 10, number 2, F major. Short little themes, nothing romantic and nothing huge. Uh, same with Opus 2, number 2. In fact, for a while, I couldn't remember which one was Opus 2, number 2, and which was Opus 10, number 2. And then I remember Opus 2, number 2 goes down, and Opus 10, number 2 goes up. So that's how I remember. Well, Alfred Brendel is uh, touring and wrote a book on humor in music, and uh -huh. he said that Beethoven had a sense of humor, and apparently nobody else did. Well, there's some people that don't believe that Beethoven had a sense of humor, and I think they're crazy. Of course he had a sense of humor. I mean, he actually liked to trip people up, like in the scherzos of the symphonies. Yes. You know, or in the Eroica symphony when the horn comes in early. I'm not sure that's humorous, but it's kind of like pulling people's leg, you know. And especially a person that I admire a great deal is uh, Claudio Arau. He didn't believe that Beethoven had a sense of humor. He doesn't believe there's humor in music in general. I think that's, I'm, uh, he's missing a, a boat somewhere. And the way he plays the great pieces like 111 is absolutely overwhelming because it's profound and it's dark and it's transcendent. The way he plays the lighter pieces, I think it's too serious. You know, like uh, Opus Therion number three. That's kind of cute, you know, it's sort of funny. That's not, it's not 111, you know? So you have to play with it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I even put words to that, by the way. Lips to mich, lips to mich. Ich liebe dich, ich liebe. So it's like somebody saying, do you love me? I said, of course I love you. So question and answer. Question, it's a question, you know, it starts with a funny chord, you know, so it's, I think it's light-hearted, you know, of course you have a sense of humor. But not frivolous. Um, sometimes even a little bit frivolous. Um, you know, he had, he had a pretty kind of uh, peasant sense of humor that was sometimes fairly, you know, off-color, you know, in conversation books and that kind of thing. You can't hear that in the piano sonatas. Uh, no, no, that I don't play off-color. What's Beethoven's greatest piece? If you had one piece of Beethoven, 
that would be presumptuous. Maybe you should ask me which I think is the greatest piano sonata. I wasn't thinking of sonatas. Oh, the greatest the, piece? Yeah. Oh, boy. I don't think I can. I can. What about Fidelio? Well, it's not a great opera, but it's a great piece. It's a great work. Uh, he was mixed up because the, the opening is more or less opera buffa, you know, when um, Leonora is dressed as, uh, as, as Fidelio, and there's some kind of banter with Marcelina and all that stuff. And then once the second act starts, then it gets serious. Uh, and I think the second act is really quite powerful about injustice and about uh, suffering and about deliverance. And a lot of it has to do with um, conjugal love, which he never had, but it's something he aspired to. So being liberated by his wife, you know, was a great thing for him. So there are parts of the piano sonatas that have Fidelio in them. I especially think about the second movement, third movement of Waldstein, which starts in the low registers. It's kind of like being in a dungeon and then it rises, and then the third movement is like a song of hope. And it's very much like the beginning of second act of Fidelio. Was Beethoven still growing in the last sonatas? Growing as a, a, a whatever? Yeah, I think he was um, in territory that nobody had ever explored before. And people didn't understand it, you know, even Czerny, who was his uh, protege and close friend, really, he didn't quite get the late sonatas. But when you look at something like 111, the second movement, which starts with that beautiful C major arietta, and then it has the various variations. And then it brings back the arietta with a rich accompaniment. And then the last statement is with trills on top in the upper register with triplets underneath. Uh, it's, it's just unheard of. You know, it's kind of cosmic music as far as I'm concerned, you know, timeless. Um, and you know, there's an anecdote about that because it's a two movement sonata. So his publisher said, I got the two movements, can we expect the third? <laughs> and he says, uh, he wrote back and he said, uh, no, no, I've been pretty busy, I'm sorry, I don't have time. Well, you'd yeah. say then, as they say about Schubert perhaps, uh, he had all, he'd said all he had to say on that subject. I think the second movement of the 111 is valedictory. It's really? kind of, I don't think he knew that he wasn't going to write any more piano sonatas, but he has the feeling of a final statement, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, he did write Diabelli Variations and wrote some Bagatelles, and he arranged the Grosse Fuga for Piano Four Hands, which has uh, an opus number of its own, opus 134. Well, an interesting part of this set, incidentally, is the Sonata for Four Hands. If we're going to do all the sonatas, we have to do all the sonatas. So I asked my friend Janice Weber to join me, and we recorded Is she that. a student or a, a fellow? No, she's a friend. A friend. And, uh, it's secundo, so is it difficult? She plays secundo. They're equal. Yeah. But it's not, an, it's not a hard piece. It's a, no. it's a minor, minor work. Okay, Peter, thank you very much for coming up from Ohio. My pleasure. It's going to be bad, the, as we can hear the weather has is, is, is changed. But this is a magnificent set, and uh, I, I've heard, not all of it, but quite a lot of it, and I'm very, very happy with it, very thank happy. You. Particularly, you, so uh, you, you, you don't look at the boxes while you're listening to the music. But uh, the whole production is, is quite magnificent, and uh, I'm very glad you I appreciate did it. that, Bruce. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for uh, putting up with us for the last half hour or so, and uh, we'll see you next time.